0: you're listening to an imagine more podcast the presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 get that good life conference hi my name is guys i am here to introduce to you and here with with young people at the
1: church and families playing ACT he people with disability alone at so house today he will talk to us about how when
0: relationships and sensitivity so, so, so is important to all of us.
1: I hope you enjoy to the Team. Thank you so much, Gus, for that and uh, introduction. Hello, everyone. It's my great pleasure to be with you to talk about these important issues that are sometimes very tricky or difficult for us to engage. Uh, my name is Tim Babinton. I'm the CEO at Sexual Health and Family Planning ACT. And I just like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you today from Ngunnawal country here in the beautiful Canberra region. Today's topic is about relationships, sexuality, and pornography. These are issues that are important to all of us that sometimes take on an extra challenging dimension when we're talking about our children, our family members, our students, or our clients, depending on how we're engaging with people where they have a disability. My experience in particular is in working with people with cognitive challenge and recognise that some of these issues are, of course, different depending on um, the particular needs and supports that individuals require. To give you a quick overview of what I'd like to cover today, I want to set the scene a little bit about why are we having this conversation. I think that might be obvious to a lot of people who are joining us, uh, but more broadly in our community, it's still often the case that people wonder out loud why we even need to have the conversation. So I'd like to set the scene a little first, talk about what we know, some of the key sexual health issues. And by sexual health, I mean that very broad sense of things. Uh, Sometimes when we use the word sexual health, people think just things like sexually transmissible infections. I mean very broadly our health and well-being in relation to relationships and sexuality. Um, And to also acknowledge some of the key challenges uh, for people in the lives of people with disability, whether they're parents or carers or support workers, uh, health or other professionals in their lives in dealing with, in engaging with and having conversations about these issues. And finally, I'd like to wrap up with some of the thinking and practical tools uh, that we bring to this conversation, this discussion about sexuality relationships. What you'll hear from me throughout is that this is the common human journey that we're talking about. This is something that's about all of us in community and that the needs of people with disability mean we may need to adapt how we do things, but we're not fundamentally doing something different. And I hope that that's the theme that that you will take away as well. What makes these conversations powerful and useful, I think, is when we talk about all of the different perspectives that we bring. So while I've got some ideas to help guide the conversation, I'm not positioning myself here as the only expert with anything to contribute. One of my jobs is to help facilitate conversation about our values, about what's important to us, and about how these conversations can unfold in a way that works for everybody. There's a whole lot of things that are driving an interest in this conversation, and the interest is not new. Uh, If we reflect back over history, we know that in our community, there's often been a significant concern about reproductive health and issues associated with that around sexuality and relationships when it comes to the needs of people with disability. We've not really done that well historically, and that's one of the key drivers to why we want to have a different kind of conversation. The ideas that make us want to have a better conversation are also not new. They come from the impact of self-advocacy of people with disabilities in our community, speaking out about what's important to them. And as a community broadly, and as support workers, carers, uh, and professionals who work in the the lives of people with disability, I think we've been required to go on a different journey. Instead of doing things to and for, um, we need to ask ourselves how we are joining in with and doing things with people with disability. So, self advocates from across our community have been instrumental in changing the way that we talk about these issues. When we're talking at a distance about things that make us uncomfortable and where we have a lot of power to not engage, not support, not talk, we often leave these things sitting in the margins. And that's a history of these particular topics. We know over not just decades, but many centuries that people with disability have often been marginalised and excluded in our communities, that we've limited their opportunities for valued social roles, for social connection. Um, We do a lot of othering. We say that they're not like us, and so we don't include them in the conversation. And again, I'll come back to this key theme in my presentation. This is the common human journey adapted for the needs of people with disability to include them effectively. Not a different conversation, not a different journey that we're on. Some of the maltreatment that we know saw the deinstitutionalization movement and the social valorization movement arise was very much about reproductive maltreatment. Um, unconsented, uninformed, forced sterilisations of women with disability were commonplace up into living memory. Uh, we still, when we are concerned about risk or behaviour, tend to reach for solutions that are about contain and manage through restrictive practices that may not be appropriate or effective at best, but that are actually breaches of people's human rights when we look at them fundamentally, and that we wouldn't tolerate for ourselves as the broader community. The conversation we've been having about meaningfully including people in community, um, whatever the reasons for their previous exclusion, has also challenged us to have this conversation in a different way. We know that people with disability are not different in these areas around desires, wants and needs, in terms of relationships from the peer and friendship level through to intimacy, both in affection and sexual intimacy, and the formation of family, which are issues that all humans make decisions about, are interested in, and we need to make sure that the conversation includes all people, regardless of the way that they process information or our views of what they're capable of, before we talk about the supports that can potentially be provided. So all of that leads to an increasing interest in supported decision-making generally and supportive, supported decision-making approaches and responses for sexual expression as well. So there's a lot of thanks to be given to the self-advocates who've had to overcome prejudice and discrimination to be part of uh, the voice in our community. And I'm very grateful for all of the other people, parents, carers, support workers and professionals who've listened and joined that journey. Uh, to be alongside people rather than um, working over the top of them. More specifically about relationships and sexuality and relationships and sexuality education, which of course in my organisation is one of the key things that we we focus on in our community. Um, We know in the last decade or so there's been increasing concern, especially for parents and carers, around access to and the prevalence of pornography. And in the professional discussions, we're very concerned as well that pornography ends up being the default sex education when we're not willing to have the conversation with young people in any other kind of way. Um, because the internet does what it does, it makes information available right now, anywhere where you are and 24-7, and sometimes that's really good for us. And other times in you know the instance of pornography, we might feel really concerned about that because we don't know how to... Monitor, we don't know how to understand the impact that viewing pornography might have on our children or on our family members. There is rightly a lot of concern around the kinds of messages that pornography sends about what good, respectful, healthy relationships look like. When we talk about this area, it's important that we take a deep breath and put our feet on the ground because there's an enormous amount of material out there on the internet that is sexual or sexualized. Not all of it is inherently harmful. And neither is all of it appropriate to be viewed. And so we've got this balancing act that we need to be very careful about. Sometimes it feels like, as a parent, the easiest answer would be just to pull the plug and deny all access to the internet. And, of course, we know that the impacts on access to information, to social connection, to support, that we all have come to rely on in our community, can't and shouldn't be denied uh, for people with disability either, just because we are uncomfortable or unsure how we're going to manage this particular issue. In the last 12 months, we've had a big conversation renewed in Australia, as it has across the planet over the last five years or so, about consent education. And when we look through the lens especially of cognitive challenge um, and what in our ACT legislation is referred to as impaired decision-making that arises um, from a disability or a disabling condition, we know that we've also got to talk about what is the capacity for a person to consent and understand. And I'd really like to remind us all that that's actually a live question for all children and young people. Disability certainly adds some additional dimensions to our questioning and our thinking about this, but it's not a different conversation. To give an example, uh, when we talk about consent education, we often imagine that we'll just do a lesson or a class, probably at school, maybe at home or in a different kind of community setting, where someone talks about yes meaning yes and no meaning no. But when we talk about consent in most other contexts, this idea of informed consent becomes really important. And when we're talking to children and young people as they mature and develop into sexually and reproductive adults, um, there comes a moment when in our first sexual experiences, we talk about informed consent that suggests that we know what we're agreeing to, that we've got some genuine and deep understanding of it. For all human beings, the first time we become sexual in a relationship, is a little bit of a gamble. It's a guess. It's a, I'm willing to give this a go, but I actually don't know because I haven't done it before, whether I'll enjoy it. So the capacity to give informed consent has got a big question mark around it in the way that we think about it in terms of legal consent in other contexts, to sign a contract, to consent to health treatment, et cetera. And that's true for all young people. It may be additionally true because of some of the particular ways that, um, people with disability process information. The way that they make sense of things or don't make sense of things, or our ability to perceive what they're making sense of, is often the biggest barrier to feeling confident that informed consent can be provided. And finally, respectful relationships has become the language where we talk about a whole lot of things. And it's sometimes helpful for us to dig just a little bit below the surface and ask what we mean there. We don't just mean prevention of family or domestic violence. We don't just mean the ability to see a harmful or negative exploitative or abusive relationship and leave it. We also mean the positive skills for relationships that we are not born with. We have to learn them. All people have to learn them. The big question we have is what opportunities are put in front of children and young people to learn the skills of relationships and are these same opportunities given to our children, our students or our clients uh, who have disability Finally, more broadly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today, but I have included just a couple of slides towards the end on sexual and reproductive health and rights for reference later. This is uh, a decades-long project of understanding human rights in the context of relationships and sexuality. So they're not new rights. Some of them are articulated in uh, things like the International Convention on the Rights of Person with Disability. Some are found by implication in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as we apply them to this particular context. So, from our work around sexual health, remembering we mean a broad meaning there, not a narrow one, some of the key issues that we know people with disability experience uh, in terms of sexual health needs and issues are one to have the rest of the community recognise them as sexual beings. And when we say sexual beings, we mean that humans have bodies, they have a gender, they have a sex, they have an understanding of these senses of themselves from an early age, And at that age and developmentally appropriate content builds over time. Often, though, we know that people with disability, because it's seen as a too hard basket issue, uh, are often relegated in people's minds to, well, you know, they're never going to have relationships or that's not going to be important or I find that too difficult is really fundamentally what this means. So we'll just pretend that that's not an important um, component of their life or their needs for us to consider and engage with. Sexual and reproductive health and rights issues are also very important. And it's important to note that all of those rights are framed in the context of freedom from violence, coercion and discrimination. And we know from the research data over decades that for people with disability, for all forms of disability, not just necessarily for cognitive challenge, the levels of violence and exploitation, sexual violence exploitation are very, very high. So we are inevitably going to be dealing with needs that come from a place where rights boundaries have not been respected and that the conversation needs to account for them. And that's why there's such a big focus at the moment on trauma-informed approaches to recognize that people don't come to a relationship with us as a blank slate without any experience, especially when we're in a support worker or professional role. That's not necessarily true in families where obviously your child, you know, comes home and um, you are starting to, you know, work from scratch there. There's already, by the time we're ready to have conversations about sexuality in relationships, children are already well informed by having watched how those things are modelled at home, how the grown-ups interact with each other, how they interact with children, how they interact with others in the community. We are never a blank slate in terms of these ideas. We have experiences, we have notions, we have values that we've begun to form. And that doesn't exclude our child, our student or our client uh, simply because they have a disability. Meaningful access to information and services that help inform decision-making and promote health and wellbeing is another significant sexual health issue for people with disability. We don't always think to do the adaptation of format of information, or we do one adaptation and we don't think about the diversity of those needs in the community. Sometimes we know that we need to simplify the way that information is presented. But we're not talking about different content. We're talking about the same content adapted for the needs of people with disability, not a different set. In school-based programs, I often talk about the special program for the special kids. We have to make sure that genuine inclusion means we're talking about the same things, but in ways that are meaningful for each person in the conversation. So that access to information is such an essential part of the ideas of informed consent, of access to care and support. And finally, again, for something that won't be unfamiliar to this audience, this big conversation in our community about how we're shifting from substitute decision-making to supported decision-making in our processes, our practices. Public advocates across the country and the world are looking to do this work differently. And we know that guardians are in our community, in the community more broadly, are at very different starting points about what they're in control of and responsible for. And those things that are actually the decision of the person, their ward, that they need to support. And these issues get very pointy in the areas of sexual and reproductive health and sexuality and relationships in particular. What I'd like to do is just invite you, um, whether you believe them to be true or not, but to think about some of the myths and stereotypes that we hear about people With disability and sexuality in relationships. This is not a statement that you believe to be true. It's the kind of thing that we might hear in the community. So you will have heard things about this or carry some ideas about them, whether you hold them uh, in your own right. Uh, First one that's come up yes, this question of being asexual, non sexual, not not having a sexuality. And depending on who you talk to, that can mean a few things. Asexual these days is actually um, becoming a, a recognized sexual orientation. Um, sometimes shortened to ace. People who say they don't seem to experience sexual and or romantic attraction in the same way as lots of other people in the community may describe themselves as asexual. I think that's a little bit different from non-sexual in the sense of that we just ignore the issue uh, of sexuality for people with disability. Uh, Can't have children. Uh, and sometimes we'd go a bit further and say, shouldn't have children. Um, this are still persistent ideas that disability is something that somehow needs to be genetically eliminated. And for self-advocates, again, in the disability sector, that's a point of significant concern. Um, don't have the same needs, again, where we somehow treat people with disabilities as being a different kind of human rather than having different ways of needing information and support to be provided that account for their needs. Yes, the eternal child, uh, highly sexual or promiscuous, um, disinterested, uninterested, just don't have those needs, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, Behaviors in public places, uh, self-touching, masturbation, and again, we often uh, draw a conclusion that can be unhelpful around some of those behaviors if we've already determined and decided that those behaviours are highly sexualized, we've eliminated other reasons and causes. And in the next little bit, I'll, I'll come to talk about why that's important. Um, always a child. And one of the things I know you'll be familiar with is the misuse of that idea of mental age, where we kind of say, oh, well, this person processes and engages with information in the way that we might expect a five-year-old, a neurotypically developing five-year-old to do that. And so therefore, they are eternally a five-year-old somehow inside, but in the body of a 15 or a 45 or a 65-year-old, we absolutely have to do work as advocates and supporters in the lives of people with disability to let people know that's the wrong way to understand that information. That means we take the same information that we would give to a 15-year-old and we make sure it's as simple and as clear as we would if we were talking about those concepts to a five-year-old. That's all that can mean. It doesn't mean that that the real person is somehow a different age from their chronology and that they don't have the same physical, relational, biological, social, spiritual needs as others of the same age in the community. Uh, great responses, everyone. Thank you so much. You're picking up on all of uh, those issues. Now, they're all, some of them are based in genuine um, understanding of needs and perspectives for people with disability, but either taken to an extreme or understood too narrowly. I uh, thank you, the person that's picked up um, the dangerous and also the must-be-cocooned kind of idea. I will come back, and if I don't, please make sure in the Q&A to draw us back to this issue of how if we don't do this right, we create an issue of safety for everybody in our community, including for people with disability. And when we don't create appropriate boundaries that reflect the rest of our community, we can actually leave people vulnerable to those accusations when they're not actually an appropriate understanding of the situation. That doesn't mean that people with disability can't harm or abuse others. Any human being has the capacity to harm or abuse others. There's something else going on that determines how those boundaries are put in place. Sometimes it's a lack of understanding of the social boundaries because they've never been explained in a way that's meaningful. And as soon as they are, you see the behavior shift. For others, sometimes you do have persistent behaviors, just like you have with uh, neuro-dominant community people, and that the risk of harm to others needs to be managed because there's a risk of harm, not because the person has a disability per se. Okay. So what is the impact of these myths and stereotypes? And there's a few ways that they play out. I've anticipated some of them already. Um, first and foremost, of course, anytime we create a set of ideas about a group of people, um, especially when they're based on stereotype or prejudice or stigma, then we're actually adding to harm through bias and stigma that we create. And those myths can form part of the social construction of disability, definitely, that somehow people with disability are so different from the rest of the community that we have to think about them and their needs in, in very, very different ways, rather than understanding how we adapt the same conversation that we have for everybody. They obviously have a direct impact on individual sense of their self, their self-esteem, their sense of well-being. anytime. and these issues across our community around sexuality and relationships are often dealt with shame and stigma and embarrassment, and. If that's uh, perpetuated through larger stereotypes about disability, then that obviously has a big impact on individuals and the sense of themselves. Those ideas around always harmful, always promiscuous, not sexual, obviously decrease opportunities for valued social roles and participation on that individual's own terms in terms of what is important to them. And we recognize that the same diversity we see across all of our community will also be true for people with disability as well. Very specifically, I anticipated this just a bit earlier, those myths and stereotypes can actually have quite significant negative health outcomes. For example, in the area where I work, uh, we see that sometimes important health screening services are not considered uh, and provided for people with disability. If the stereotype or the myth is this person is not sexual, then we don't think about things like cervical screening or STI screening as part of routine healthcare. We just assume they can't possibly be issues because this person isn't in a relationship as we see it or understand it. But as soon as we also recognise that vulnerability to sexual exploitation is so high, then actually we see that these should be really important parts of healthcare that we are considering and talking about and supporting access to, not just doing to people because that's just to repeat the harms of the past um, again and again but to make sure that sexual health issues actually are considered as part of health checks and not just assumed because we don't think that a person is capable of or interested in relationships and sex, that therefore that's true. Another example is where we see symptoms or concerns ignored or misinterpreted. And and one of the examples from our experience was we were called by a respite care service who was very, very concerned about one of their um Female clients who was, as they put it, masturbating with a hairbrush, and they rightly saw that 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 could be injurious, um, could cause damage, and they were very concerned about it. But what was interesting is that they had already decided that it was a sexual behaviour, and so when we said, uh, "What has their GP said?" they realised they didn't have any information about that, and when they found out um, that there hadn't been a, a recent doctor's appointment, that was made to happen, and the woman actually had a persistent case of thrush, and was, of course, self-soothing, not engaging in what we might understood as the sexual satisfaction of masturbation, but actually trying to deal with the symptoms of, of an undiagnosed, untreated thrush infection. So again, once we narrow our concerns based on those myths and stereotypes to either not about sex or only about sex, we've lost our capacity to think about the more broader range of issues that might be going on. And again, I would say that's not uncommon across our community, but it's one of the places where the interaction of those ideas about disability really comes in. And of course, not talking about, not engaging with, deciding that someone doesn't need on their behalf, uh, significantly increases vulnerability to sexual abuse and exploitation for people with disability. We know in the child protection space that even basic things like being able to accurately name your body parts is protective in terms of sexual abuse and exploitation. And even if it doesn't prevent, it means that a child or a young person is able to articulate something that has happened to them that's not okay quickly and sooner and get some of the assistance to stop, to prevent future exploitation and to be assisted with what's already happened to them. So uh, these conversations are really, really important for all children and young people. And that means they have to include our uh, children and young people with disability as well. So what are our goals when we talk about sexuality relationships and the issue of pornography uh, with people with disability, especially our children and young people. Well, I would frame them this way. We are looking for the same or similar opportunities and outcomes as their age peers, that's the starting point, Uh, that we want to adapt things, not because the special kids need special programs that are different just because, that we actually adapt what we're doing so that the same information, the same content, the same learning opportunities. The same social participation opportunities and outcomes are sustained for people with disability based on how they need to engage with process information and make sense of and make decisions about themselves and the world that they live in. I think for all parents and carers, and for many of us in our professional roles as well, we have the same fundamental goals of we want kids to be safe, healthy, well, and if it's possible to keep them happy along the way, as we do those first three things, well, then happy is good as well. Uh, we know that that can't always be the case um, when it comes to food choices, when it comes to social opportunities. Our young people often want to do things that uh, we don't necessarily consider uh, safe or good for them. And we have to make those decisions on their behalf until they're old enough to make them for themselves. So not always happy, but definitely I know that that's a goal for lots of parents is that their children feel connected, that they feel a sense of satisfaction in their life. And why would this be different um, for people with disability? Because it's part of the common human uh, need, part of the common human journey. All of us, if we look through frameworks like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, need sustaining connection with people who love us, who care for us, who support us. And when our relationships are reliant on a very narrow set of people, maybe even one person, then that doesn't mean a rich and uh, fulfilling life necessarily. So our role as carers, as supporters, as professionals is sometimes not to replace the formation of natural relationships. It's to get out of the way and do the support work that's required so that friendships, connections, uh boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, sexual relationships can form in the ways that work for a person with disability. And again, in the last decade, we've seen a lot more focus on doing this alongside and with rather than two and four. Uh, A big shift in our thinking as a wider community about how to do this better. And then very specifically in our relationships and sexual interactions with other people, all human beings need to feel in control of our body and our choices, to feel respected, to be seen and to be considered. And that a lot of the experience of sexual violence is just the opposite of this, that we're not in control of our bodies. We don't get to make choices around who touches us and how and where and when, the ways that we want to be touched and the ways that we don't want to be touched. And that, of course, leads to a sense of being disrespected, uh, unconsidered at best. That's before we talk about some of the other uh, impacts of trauma from sexual violence and other forms of violence for people with disability and people broadly in our community. There's a positive upswing aspect to this as well, though, which is as human beings, we all want to be seen and we often want to be seen sexually, but in a way that we feel validates and empowers us. We absolutely want to feel in control. So it's nice to be noticed. It's nice that other people see us and think that we're attractive. It's nice to flirt. It's not nice when those things come with uh, a sense of threat um, that... Someone won't actually respect my boundary at the other side. And so this becomes the really complex work that we're doing as a broader community at the moment around shifting our discussions about consent and respectful relationships away from a very simple black and white, yes is yes and no is no, to some of those more complex situations. One of the reasons why that black and white framing of the issues hasn't been as effective, it's true, yes is yes and no is no, but there's a whole lot of spaces in between where we want to actually feel empowered and seen and respected and valued as our sexual selves, but where we don't know that people on the other side are necessarily going to respect our boundary, to check in and ask what's okay. And this is the content that young people are screaming out for. This is where we have failed in our consent education over some decades, is to not talk about the reality of negotiating relationships with that important yes is yes and no and no background but where the complex issues come in, because a lot of the time it's not, doesn't feel as straightforward as that, even though we know that that it is that clear. So key challenges for us as parents, carers, support workers, and health professionals, there's a few things going on here. One is managing our own values about these issues and those of the community more broadly. Um, We often just tend to see the disability to the exclusion of all other characteristics. And I can't tell you the number of conversations over the years with parents of children with disability uh, where I end up saying, to you know, that sounds like being 14 more than it sounds like, you know, a, a person with intellectual disability or Down syndrome. Sometimes we ourselves, even though we know and see a whole person, we get a little bit caught up in the diagnosis and in the particular implications when actually sometimes what's going on is just a fundamentally very human moment mediated through those experiences of cognitive challenge or physical limitation or mobility support requirement of the highest support means that we know are present. So it's not about denying those, um, but it's also sometimes about being able to set them aside as the only thing that's driving our concern or the issues that we're dealing with. And, of course, where people are nervous, uncomfortable uh, about the topic of sex at all, getting it on the agenda in this conversations is important. We need those communication strategies, tools, the interpreters, the people who understand how our client, our child, our student communicates uh, so that we can have the best possible conversation for them, recognising that sometimes those people might be parents or carers and that can be a barrier to the conversation in its own right. I say slightly humorously, you know, the two groups of people on the planet, we don't want to think about having sex are our parents and our children, which means although family is such an important place for the grounding of these t- discussions, uh, it's also can be quite uncomfortable because we don't necessarily want to do the nitty-gritty chat about how do you have sex? with our parents or our kids. But children and young people say very uh, consistently in research that they value their parents' perspectives on how they made those decisions for themselves. Even if they make different decisions for them, they want to know what was important to their parents, how they made a decision about when to be sexual or not, about the formation of relationships, about what respects look like in peer relationships. They don't necessarily want to do exactly the same thing that we did, but they're very curious about that and it helps them get a sense of who they are, how they're the same and how they're different. From us and from other people in their community. The big ingredient we need often is time, especially when we're talking about cognitive challenge. We just may require many more interactions or consultations, if it's a health professional, to cover the same kind of ground that we might for a neurotypically developing person. So allowing that time and space um, mentally at the start of an engagement is really important. We may just need more time to cover the same ground rather than there's different ground to cover. And that that can be supported by connections with partnerships and support organizations. There's four things I think help us do this well. One is our ability to clarify our own values, what's important to us, where that comes from, and then the ability to articulate that respectfully and neutrally. And to listen to where someone else is coming from. Our ability to do values clarification is mostly what drives difficulty in this area. We come across issues that we didn't expect to be important or significant or triggers for us, and we then react rather than act with intention. I'm also going to talk about a couple of other little tools that we can uh, use to think our way through complexity here. So values clarification is always about a balancing act between what's important to our individual with disability when in whatever capacity we support and interact with them in our life versus what's important to us and ourselves. And it's not about surrender what's important to you, it's understand that that might be different from what's important to someone else and that your values and priorities may not be the same as theirs. There is the tension in the conversations. The second is a test that's well known in in legal circles, uh, especially in the way that tribunals approach decision-making, either substitute decision-making or supported alternative decision-making, which is to ask, what would we be doing if we didn't have disability here? It's a great way to test. Whether our response is about making sure that our person gets the same or a similar outcome and opportunity as their age peers, or whether we're doing it only through the lens of disability. Um, So sometimes we see an example, um, again, from my work where we were invited as someone who'd never had contact directly with the client to sit in a case conference as we had a discussion about whether an 18-year-old young woman was allowed to have a boyfriend, and the young woman wasn't present. Now, I can't imagine any other situation except where disability is present, where a group of eight people think that it's their business to sit around a table without the person they're talking about and make decisions on their behalf about their relationship status. The only person in the room who actually had an understanding of the client's priorities and needs in that space was a support worker who had the the least sort of positional power in the discussion. So, in that situation, uh you know, I can't imagine we'd discuss 18-year-olds uh, in any other context. In fact, we'd go hands-off more often than not and go, none of our business, over the age of consent, up to them, and that might to miss an opportunity to have someone who cares uh, and is respected by the person check in with them and ask them what's important to them and what's okay and do they want support. We do some very strange things around children and young people as they reach legal ages where we stay hands-on for people with disability and we go hands-off for everybody else in ways that may not actually be helpful. Um, this is a thinking tool. You've got a choice every time you encounter an issue or a need Um, and you can move in a number of directions. First is to do nothing because maybe there is nothing to be done. Maybe it's just to be understood and supported. You can actually act to support what someone says that they want or need or desire, or you can actually use time and energy to prevent them from doing that. Now, sometimes our role as parents and carers, especially, is to prevent things that are going to be harmful. Uh, sometimes it's our job to put opportunities in front of people so that they get the chance to learn in a supported kind of way. And again, this is true for all people, not just for people with disability. But this little triangle is sometimes a useful model for thinking about what are the options we have available to us against each of those kind of edges of the triangle. And then in that same model, to actually brainstorm what we call least to most intervention, which is clarify what's important here, what's going on, gives the needs of the person with disability primacy in the discussion, be aware of what other people have got to say, what their opinions are, uh, and then actually work out what the range of least intrusive to most intrusive approaches or supports or preventative measures might be and find the ones that work best. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tim. And now we'll jump straight into the questions. It was a great session, Tim. So, there's lots of questions coming through. We've got one here around understanding that porn has the potential to become addictive, especially if it changes the way the person interacts with others. So are we better off to just block it completely?
1: Yeah, this is a a challenging area. Um, There's, of course, an age appropriateness and legal dimension to this conversation around sexually explicit media are inappropriate for children to see. That sometimes doesn't align neatly with developmentally what becomes interesting and um, accessible as adolescents begin to be interested in and children are, are interested as well in what bodies look like and how they function but adolescents in particular in terms of seeing how sex works and and bodies function there's almost nothing that replaces what pornography does in terms of here's a whole bunch of ways that bodies can kind of go together sexually but it gives you zero context for how did those two people negotiate that or more what was okay or not. And there's genuine concerns around a lot of what is modeled in pornography is not respectful relationships. It's not the the giving, seeking and respecting of consent. It's just get straight into touching people without actually wondering about those things. So my view is we should not be drawn to the extremes of saying anytime any person saw a sexual image online, they're somehow permanently damaged. The evidence doesn't support that. Or people saying there's nothing to see here, don't worry about it. The the evidence doesn't support that either. What the evidence does speak to in terms of harms is where um, early sexualization and persistent uh, sexual behavior like masturbation associated with high frequency uh imagery of sex through pornography, that's what causes harm. Not kids having a little bit of a look and being a bit curious and, you know, giggling and and especially if that's kind of um seen as something that isn't secretive and shameful and a conversation can happen with grown-ups or even in the peer group, that's far less likely to be harmful than some of the other things where really negative, harmful, sexually violent behaviours are modelled and no other counterpoint is offered. So, no, we shouldn't pull the plug. What we need to do is start the conversation about how to make sense of what's being viewed, and that can be very uncomfortable for parents and for educators as well. Boundary between adults and children and young people that we want to respect and and uh, yeah. reinforce at the same time as young people are saying, "Well, we want to have this conversation with people who will do it meaningfully and not in a way that's shameful or punitive."
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and we've heard stories where um, I think schools have not known how to deal with certain situations. So there's been a few questions around that with that whole sex education and missing out within the school content because um, it's not accessible or perhaps there's the assumption that it's um, not appropriate. So, have you got some advice for s- how schools can be doing this better?
1: Yeah, the first is it's not one-off. Uh, anytime we do something one-off, uh, that increases the risk that the student wasn't present on the day that it happened and never caught up, or they weren't actually able to attend. Humans learn through repetition, and we learn through doing, and we learn about relationships exactly the same way, by doing. So, although our curriculum is often very crowded in the school context, we need to see this as something that is ongoing, that we are building from year to year, from term to term, in a program that sees all of the parts that we often do in schools but treat as separate silos coming together and making sure that if people miss out on certain aspects, that we cover them again for them. And remembering that at this age, late primary school into high school especially, developmentally, you could repeat the same content and it would be developmentally appropriate for maybe 10% of the class every year from year four to year 10. Some young people are doing puberty at year five. Some are not doing it till year nine. You could do the same puberty session each year, year and out, and find that a different cohort in the room is engaging with that in a different and more meaningful way each time you repeat it. You don't want to bore people to death the same content, but repetition is such an important part and the opportunity to ask again and again as developmentally it becomes more meaningful is often a thing we miss in learning design in this space.
0: And perhaps I can go back and look at some of the sessions with Sarah Humphreys around universal design for learning. So maybe present it in a lot of different formats and ways as well to make it more interesting and engaging for everyone.
1: Yes, absolutely. I can't yeah. agree with that Lloyd is universal design. <laughs> we, we plan for the range of need, not just for the average of need.
0: It's so hard to support a very shy, very quiet, um, someone that doesn't speak, uh, to communicate, but um, often to say to access opportunities to make connections that may be sexual. Have you got some ideas?
1: I agree. It is hard. And it's about adjusting our engagement. That, that person's probably going to need a, a quiet, um, alongside kind of presence for the conversation. And remembering what I said about often it's time. What we need is more time to cover the same ground. That would be my two starting points with that. Uh, I think, um, again, it's the, it's a human universal that for some people, a natural shyness, a natural inhibition, an introversion, you know, is a personality type is is going to limit their confidence around stepping out into the social world. And that doesn't mean that they don't want or don't need some of that. But I think it means that we, we have to meet them in terms of a, a more quiet approach and not just assuming that the way to do that is to throw them into social experience that could be overwhelming. And again, I think that's especially true for some of our young people um, with neurodiversity, but it's not, not true for everybody in the community. There's not one way to do this right. There's a whole lot of ways and what we have to understand is what's important to each person and the way that they're going to get maximum connection doesn't necessarily look like the person next to them. I haven't really touched on the how to be sexual in all of that because I think that's a bigger one, but we're coming close to time. I've
0: got so many more questions. Clearly, there's a real need and a real thirst from the people that have joined us today to understand more how we can help people with disability have those meaningful, intimate relationships. So, I just want to say a huge thank you, Tim. Um, Obviously, we're addressing something that's really important to a lot of people and yeah we just want to thank you for joining us today
1: thank you everybody um it's been really great to spend this time with you and and best wishes for the rest of the conference
0: you've been listening to imagine more podcast if you enjoyed it don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to imagine for more great content